0: Take ORFM Dunedin with you wherever you go with podcasts and streaming of primo local content. Download the accessmedia.nz app for free from Google Play and the Apple App Store. This program was first broadcast on ORFM Dunedin and made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air.
1: Between 1908 and 1938, 130 young Anglo-Indians were sent to New Zealand. They were the mixed-race children of British tea planters and Indian women, raised in a Presbyterian mission school in Northeast India and sent as workers to families all over New Zealand. Separated from their parents and their places of birth, the Kalampong kids went on to blend into local communities and seldom spoke of their Indian heritage. My name is Jane McCabe, I'm a historian, and my grandmother was one of the Kalampong immigrants. In this series, I'll be discussing the Kalampong scheme and the journeys of many descendants to uncover their hidden family histories with my colleague Pauline Martins. Along the way, we'll be talking about some images from my new book, which brings together photographs from family collections all over New Zealand to tell an amazing visual story. The photographs we refer to are all available on the Otago Access Radio website.
0: So, Jane, we spoke briefly about the tea plantation interracial families in the last episode and the social context, which meant that those families were a kind of open secret. Yes, that's right. So by open secret, I mean that
1: uh, locally in the tea plantation areas, uh, often people knew that these families existed. Um, But as we talked about in the last episode, um, there was um, a real problem if that information got out into wider society so the planters didn't, didn't want their family in um, England at home in England knowing about it but also in wider society in British India um, there was a sense that they needed to keep this a secret Now the thing for the planters in Assam was that this region was still relatively isolated in that period and the plantations themselves were um, big areas so a normal plantation would probably have been a couple of thousand acres um, and almost like the homes at Kalimpong, they were a world unto themselves so there were markets and schools and all of the workers so there would be maybe a couple of thousand workers who lived on the plantation so they were almost like little townships themselves. So within the plantation, uh, people would know that the planter had these interracial families, but because they were quite isolated, they were able to keep that a secret. Uh, And I think what my research has shown is that in those early years, uh, they were just like normal families. So the planters established quite stable, loving relationships with these women. Uh, The women often lived in the bungalow with them, uh, and they had numerous children sometimes. But, so, the problem that we um, talked about in the last episode as well uh, was what would become of the children how did they um, how would they get an education and so, when John Graham opened. Uh, his home in Kalampong in 1900. This was uh, seen as a very good solution to the problem um, but what it meant was those families were broken apart so the children were sent to the homes in Kalampong and for most of them they would never go back to the plantation again so they'd never see their mothers again uh, and and for most of them never saw either of their parents again. And then in the future the families would break up even more when the planters retired um, back to England and often that left the woman destitute. So the interesting thing from... Thinking about the visual record, which is what my new book is all about, is that the visual record actually shows how these three parts of those families were recorded quite separately. So they look quite separate in the visual record and in the documentary record, and there are no photos of those families all together um, so we can say that the, the visual record uh, is quite misleading, it makes it seem like these were three quite separate um, parts of the family when actually they, they lived together at least for a time uh, as a normal kind of family um, so, f- so from the photographic record we can see um, how the, those three parts of the family, so the tea planters, the Indian mothers and the Anglo-Indian children were all treated quite separately.
0: Today's episode is called What's in a Name? So here you're referring to those three parts to the families. Yes, that's right. So I thought it would
1: be interesting to look at each of those terms and to think about um, how they can affect the way that we think about those family histories. Because for Kalimpong descendants, when we're trying to understand why the Kalampong immigrants didn't talk about it or to piece together our family histories, we can be a little bit put off by, um, the, by our particular understandings of each of those terms. So if we start with Indian mothers, for example, uh, and we have a photo on the website of one of the Indian mothers of uh, Kalampong kids on the tea plantation, so this, this photo is really amazing because it is the only photo to surface so far of one of these women. So the story for the Indian mothers is really um, one of being erased from the record, so from the documentary record, but also from the photographic record. So it's just wonderful uh, that we have a photo of one of um, the mothers. So this was... Um, this woman's name is Nora, uh, and she's... Um, uh, and this photo is actually really small. Um, it's only about two centimetres square. Um, but her granddaughter has um, enlarged this photo um, to quite a big size and has it in a, a frame in her living room. So it's a very, uh, it's a very important photo, especially when we, when we think about the erasure of those women from the record.
0: And what does the photo tell us about the problem with the term Indian mother? Yes, so I suppose for me as well, um, and I will have
1: said in the in the previous episode that all we knew about my grandmother was that she was born in India and that she was part Indian. Um, but what myself and a lot of other Kalimpong descendants who actually go to this part of India find out is that Northeast India uh, is a very interesting region. There's a lot of ethnic diversity there. It's very different from mainland India, um, and that reflects um, its specific history I suppose so when we say Indian mothers, um, that actually disguises the fact that the women who were the mothers of the Kalampong kids were of all different ethnicities so when I went to Dr Graham's homes and found um, Lorna's name, my grandmother's name in the admissions book it, it didn't have her mum's name but it had her mum's ethnicity so she was Nepali so immediate f- immediately for me that seems like uh, quite an um, important detail to have after just having this this term Indian mother, well actually she was Nepali um, In Nora's case she was Kasi so um, the Kasi people are local to a particular part of Assam uh, and they're interesting because they don't have caste so when we think of India we think of um, communities that have caste uh, and often with the women it's said that they were Outcast because they had relationships with British tea planters. But actually, for some of these um, women, they didn't have caste, so that wasn't an issue. So knowing um, those details around their ethnicity um, helps us to understand their particular story. So through doing um, their... Well, through my research... um, i found that the mothers of the Kalampong kids were Assamese, they were Nepali, some were Bhutanese, uh, some were Bengali, so many different ethnicities. So it is quite important to think about ethnic variation. But the other thing, I suppose, is that we think of them as the mothers of the Kalampong kids, but actually the way that they met the British tea planters was through working on the tea plantations. So they were part of... Um, labour force that often came from different parts of India. So Nepal, for example, there were migrations from Nepal to Assam over a long period. Um, yeah, so those women have their own story of migration coming to the tea plantations as workers. Uh, some of them worked as tea pickers uh, and others worked as housekeepers um, for those British tea planters.
0: Okay, great. And um, the women were in relationships with tea planters. That's another interesting term. Yes, it
1: is. So I think... um The term tea planter has, well, I don't know what you think of the term tea planter, but uh, for myself and I think for a lot of um, descendants and just people in general, it has quite grand connotations. For sure, yeah. Yeah. Um, So I would think of tea planters as being part of a a group who were probably exploiting local populations um, and doing quite well financially. Uh, But actually, as it turns out, um, tea planters were, uh, they didn't own Plantations. They were workers as well, so we could we could describe them most accurately as managers of tea estates. They didn't start as managers. They started as assistant managers. Um, They would be recruited in Britain, so they would apply for a job. They would be sent to a particular plantation, and they would start work as an assistant manager. it would usually then take about 10 years for them to achieve the position of manager which meant that they were in charge of a plantation Uh, and from there there was um, there were a couple more steps that they could move up in that hierarchy but so the interesting thing here is so most tea planters didn't have a financial stake in the plantation. The plantation was owned by a, a tea agency so they were workers and they could be transferred around different plantations as well and so sometimes the reason that they the thing that prompted them to send their children to Kalampong was that they were being transferred from one plantation to another and it was just too difficult to transfer their families as well. Um, So in a way, we could say that both the tea planters and the Indian mothers were migrants on the tea plantations. So um, those men, as I think I've mentioned previously, always retired back to England. So this was very much a career for them in India, but home uh, was still England. But they would have had to learn the local language or languages. Yes, absolutely. So this was one thing that I hadn't really taken into account as well um, when I um, got my grandmother's file from Kalampong uh, and my great-grandfather, the tea planter, mentioned in one of his letters when he was sending his children to Kalampong that they didn't speak a word in English. And at the time I thought, oh gosh, well he mustn't have been very close to them Um Assuming that he didn't speak the local languages But through my research I found that of course tea planters had to speak uh, All of the local languages and the local dialects And be very familiar um, with local customs as well So I think that's quite different to what we might think of uh, as a tea planter
0: Yeah, that's a very interesting perspective on the Victorian father Yes We have a photo on the website of your great-grandfather who you just mentioned, and he was a tea planter. That's
1: right. So um, we have a photo here of Egerton Peters, my great-grandfather, on the veranda of his bungalow in Kachar, which is in the south of Assam. So, his story was quite typical. He went to Assam aged 19 and he was there for 30 years. Um, now, he had had a family background in India, as many tea planters did, so both his father and his grandfather had worked in India. Um, The interesting thing for my great-grandfather is that he actually retired to New Zealand to be with his daughter, Lorna, uh, and his other children after they were sent to New Zealand um, through the Kalampong scheme. That would have been unusual. It was quite unusual, although in my research I did discover um, at least five tea planters later followed their children to New Zealand. So I think that says something about uh, the idea that New Zealand was uh, a relatively open place um, for these families to be able to reunite in a way that they couldn't in India or in Britain.
0: And the offspring of these relationships were known as Anglo-Indian?
1: Yes, so the, the third of these important terms in this um, family story is Anglo-Indian. So Anglo-Indian actually can also refer to British people in India. Uh, so often mixed-race people in India were known as Eurasian, um, but they didn't like this term as a community, and so from the early 1900s they actually were officially uh, allowed to be known as Anglo-Indian.
0: So, what is distinctive about the Anglo Indian community in India? Yes, so for
1: the Anglo Indian community in India, had a long history of segregation. So, both, um, if we can generalise, the Indian side and the British side were quite concerned with purity, with racial purity. So, there was always um, the community was always regarded as problematic and uh, treated quite separately. So, the British. The the British had a kind of an an ambivalent view of the Anglo-Indian community because on the one hand they were regarded as potentially a good loyal workforce Uh, but they also wanted to keep their distance uh, as a way of maintaining their own Britishness. So Anglo-Indians were, so they often worked on the railways. Uh, The British created um, what they called railway colonies. So again, another kind of little world in British India. So these were like townships where Anglo-Indians worked and socialised and married within their own community. But the Kalampong kids had a different ancestry to that. Yes, that's right. So because the Kalampong kids were born on a tea plantation in the early years, they were amongst their um, maternal extended family. So they really had no exposure to what we think of as the Anglo-Indian community uh, in mainland India. Um, and this was also part of the reason why the tea planters were very keen to send their children out of India because their concern was if they sent their children to a school to have an education and they were then um, found employment in India, it was very likely that they would fall into the Anglo Indian community, which the British tea planters had uh, quite a negative view
0: of. And the photographic record reflects the separation of those parts of the plantation families. Yes, that's right. So we can see
1: um, already with the Indian mothers, there are hardly any photos. The tea planters, there are heaps of photos. So they took a lot of photos of themselves. They have a lot of photos of themselves, like my great-grandfather, often uh, with sporting and social events with other planters, uh, but no photos of the planters with their um, children in India uh, or with um, the women that they lived with. Uh, likewise, with Anglo Indian children, we have a lot of photos of them from Kalimpong, but that groups them together with other. Anglo-Indian children. So we have the third photo that we have on the website today is of one of the Kalampong immigrants, Nancy Dinning. Uh, So this is a very precious photo of her because it's um, inside the bungalow. So because these uh, families were secret we don't have many of these sorts of photos and it's very nice for us as descendants um, to be able to imagine what life was like for them in the bungalow. So this is a photo of Nancy as an infant uh, on the bed uh, in the tea planters bungalow and this I guess this allows us to think of those families as having this this precious time when those babies were young just like uh, any other family um, but of course that all changed when the children were sent to Kalampong.
0: Thank you Jane and the next episode we'll look ahead to their lives in New Zealand where many were reunited with their siblings and some with their fathers too. Yeah thank you. You've been listening to the Kalampong Kids podcast.
1: To listen to other episodes in this series, please go to the Otago Access Radio website at www.oar.org.nz. If you would like to know more about the Kalampong Kids, you can visit my website at www.kalampongkids.org.nz. My new book is called Kalampong Kids, The New Zealand Story in Pictures. It is available at all good bookstores or through the Otago University Press website.
0: Take FM Dunedin with you wherever you go with podcasts and streaming of primo local content. Download the accessmedia.nz app for free from Google Play and the Apple App Store. This program was first broadcast on FM Dunedin and made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air.